Welcome to Bespoke Investment Group's Bespoke Cast. I'm George Perks, macro strategist for Bespoke Investment Group. Bespoke Cast features conversations with markets professionals and economists whose views we find interesting or insightful into the world of finance and economics. If you like what you hear today, you can learn more about our firm by visiting our website, bespokepremium.com. Bespoke offers financial market research and insight to investors of all types, ranging from individuals to large institutions. You can follow us on Twitter at Bespoke Invest. If you enjoy BespokeCast, we would also appreciate you reviewing the podcast in the iTunes store or on your favorite podcast platform. Reviews help us gain visibility and also help us improve the podcast in future episodes. Welcome back to BespokeCast. After quite a hiatus here, we have returned and we're just so thrilled this week to have a completely different conversation from the kind of one we usually have. We focused a lot on investors and on contemporaries, and we're going to do something completely different today. So joining us from out in California on election day as we're recording here is Patrick Wyman. Uh, Patrick, thanks so much for joining us today. Uh, Really stoked to have you. Hey, thanks so much for having me on. So you, y'all are probably wondering, who is this Patrick Wyman character? So so Patrick is a guy who hosts a podcast called Tides of History. And one of the reasons that Tides of History is really interesting is that it dives into what sort of made the modern state, what made the modern economy, what made the modern nation, and, and how does that sort of tie together across a pretty broad swath of history from sort of the the um, dark ages through to almost almost to today if you if you pull the strands far enough so what we're going to do today as i said is, is a little bit different from what we've typically done um, i'm going to talk a little bit about patrick's bio here in a second but what we're going to do is we're going to compare four different institutions across history and how those institutions relate to each other how they don't relate to each other and how we can use them to analyze the world today versus the world in the past. We'll get more into that after we've talked a little bit about Patrick, but Patrick, uh, you have a really interesting bio because it's not every day that a history podcaster is also an MMA expert. You used to be a scout and an analyst about, you know, writing about MMA. Yeah. So I got into that uh, totally randomly when I was doing my PhD. Uh, A roommate of mine was a big mixed martial arts fan and I got really into it. I started watching every fight and then I I decided, well, you know, maybe I'll I'll give this a shot for myself. This seems like fun. So I started training. uh, And after I had done it for a while, I got really into the technical aspects of it. So I started doing scouting reports for professional fighters. I worked with a couple of UFC champions. And uh, from that, I started doing um, like commercial type stuff for for websites. So I worked for Bleacher Report and the Washington Post and Deadspin. uh, And that turned into a whole career as an MMA journalist, which somehow is a less dying industry than uh, medieval history academia. So I did that for a (laughs) while. um, And until I found history podcasting, which has been a it's been a really kind of surprisingly smooth series of transitions over time. Did you ever fight yourself or were you just purely sort of looking at it from the sidelines? Um, so I, I got to spar with enough professional fighters and some very good ones who uh, beat me up badly enough that I knew I did not want to do that. That sounds a lot like my football career, to be honest. Like, you know, sort of like I was in all the meetings and I like I got all the playbook digested and stuff, but I wasn't really the one doing it most of the time because I was just a scrubby walk on. So it sounds sounds kind of similar. I, I can relate to you there. Yeah, I got leg kicked once by a UFC heavyweight champion. And I just I was at that point. I'm like, OK, this is never, ever going to be a thing that I want to do. <laughs> Your academic work is also really interesting, and and we're going to touch on antiquarian history here, or antiquity, um, as well as more recent past episodes. Um, But you wrote a PhD thesis at USC, that's Southern Cal, not South Carolina. I live in the Carolinas, so I have to make that make that proviso. Uh, You wrote a a PhD thesis at Southern Cal called Letters Mobility and the Fall of the Roman Empire. What did you what was the, the thesis about, basically? 
So um, every period has characteristic types of source that exist in, in large numbers, in large quantities. So for the early Middle Ages, it's, uh, it's charters. It's things like property transactions and deeds. Um, for the period that I worked on that I was really interested in, from about 400 to 600 or so, it's letters. Um, letters survive, correspondence survives in huge quantities, thousands and thousands of letters. So I thought, you know, these are inherently mobile documents. They're traveling from place to place. Um, I wonder if I can use them to build up a picture of communications networks about where things were going as kind of a proxy marker for people moving at a time when it's hard to see movement. We just don't have sources that tell us a lot about um, travel, whether it's over long distances or relatively short ones. We don't really have a sense for how that world connected together. So what I was trying to do was to use letters as a proxy for that movement to see, okay, if we've got a letter carrier moving, that means there's a road, that means there's a boat, that means there's a ship that's going from point A to point B. It's not just a letter carrier hacking his way through the wilderness with a machete, right? Like it must fit into some broader kind of matrix of movement. So um, I built up pictures of how communications networks um, functioned and changed over time. And then I tied that into trade networks. So I tried to correlate the two to see are there points of overlap. Um, and it brought me to seeing what are the places that seem to be really central in these networks of communication and trade, um, and, and to try to see how different source bases showed you different aspects of a kind of an underlying real world of movement. It was that, that sounds quite quantitative. Was, was that a quantitative effort or was it more qualitative in terms of, oh, I'm seeing a lot of letters going, um, for instance, to Marseille, modern Marseille, or I'm seeing a lot of letters flow in and out of Rome, or I'm seeing a lot of letters flow in and out of Britannia. Um, or did you actually quantify it and, and create a, a mathematical representation of that? I, there was not quite enough data to do a mathematical representation. You really have to wait until the Middle Ages to get the volume of source material that allows you to that allows you to work in quantitative terms. I had about three thousand letters, um, somewhere on either side of three thousand, and that sounds like a lot, but spread over a couple of hundred years, it's not really enough to get um, to get a full picture of what was there. So I, I looked for comparative purposes. I looked for like a, like virtual letters, letters that are mentioned in other sources, but which do not themselves survive. And there is a huge amount of lost material. So I thought if I tried to model it mathematically, um, I was going to end up obscuring more than uh, more than I was able to actually talk about um, because there's just not quite enough to do it. When you get to the 16th, 17th, 18th centuries and you have people who have tens of thousands of surviving letters like Voltaire or Ben Franklin, um, then you can then you can actually do that kind of mathematical modeling. I thought for my period, it was uh, like the more data I had, the better, but I couldn't quite use it in a quantitative sense. And you were actually going in and, and reading those letters in Latin, translating them and getting the, the stuff you needed out of them. It, it, you were working with raw source material, right? You weren't you were just reading summaries. Yeah, no, I was working with the raw source material. I, I collected, I scraped metadata out of them. So where were they sent from? Where were they sent to? Um, what likely route did they take? And I tried to model, I, I tried to figure that out for ev each and every letter. As folks who listen to this podcast regularly know, we at Bespoke are big fans of data and big fans of you know, finding interesting stuff from bits and pieces. That to me is a very bespoke kind of approach to uh, to, to antiquity, to the history of antiquity. So uh, we, we applaud you for that, Patrick. So um, <laughs> the I, I think we can sort of turn our attention here to the what we're going to focus on, which is um, trying to understand the big question I had when I, I reached out to Patrick to come on this podcast is to ask him as someone that has some expertise in 
a variety of different periods of economic history that look very different from our own. Sort of what are the takeaways we can we can use to look at history and, and look to today and say, okay, here's a lesson that we can apply. And what are the limitations of that? And that's obviously a very big question and we're only gonna be here for about an hour. So doing that, um, sort of ad hoc seemed a little sloppy. So what Patrick and I decided we would talk about is using sort of a, a, a comparative analysis. We're going to use four different institutions from four very different periods of history. We're going to look at the differences and similarities between a Roman estate in, in antiquity or late antiquity, a medieval manor um, in the uh, medieval period, so um, roughly, what, uh, 1080 or 1180 to 13 or 1400 AD, um, and then an early modern trading company, so the sort of um, smaller um, middle class generating type business that you would see in Europe as transportation and technology improved and a bunch of other things started to happen. And then finally, we'll have the modern public corporation, which, you know, think Apple, think Walmart, think think a giant company that has um, limited liability shareholders that are distributed literally around the world, that has a board of directors, that has all sorts of interfaces with labor markets and governments and competitors and suppliers and so on and so and consumers. Very different animals we evolved through time for these four different institutions. So hopefully we can synthesize a little bit of conversation around that and come out with a couple takeaways about what we can learn from economic history and what we can't. Patrick, does that sound good to you? That sounds wonderful to me. Awesome. Okay. I think it would be really helpful to just start out first with a couple minute summary of what a Roman estate looks like, what a medieval manor looks like, what an early modern trading company looks like, and what a modern public corporation looks like. And we'll hopefully not dwell on this too much, but I want to give folks at least a starting point so we can start doing some comparisons and some anti-comparisons, I suppose, too, um, between these four different institutions. Um, so, Patrick, let's start with a Roman estate. What was a Roman estate, and why do we care? Like, like why, why was that an important economic institution in the in the late Roman Empire? Okay, so a Roman estate. Now, for all of these cases that we're talking about, there's going to be variation, right? We're trying to create kind of an ideal type that's going to allow us to, to engage in these discussions. So we're going to hit, uh, we're going to try to hit the most salient factors. But just bear in mind as we're talking about these, there are always going to be variations. Um, they're going to vary in size. They're going to vary in their precise orientation toward markets. Uh, they're going to vary a little bit in the type of labor that they have. So, um, so if you're if you're a, a real Roman estate head, um, don't don't hit us too hard here on on some of these uh, simplifications. But basically, a Roman estate uh, is going to be a pretty large entity, generally speaking, especially in the Western half of the Roman Empire, where you have a really old and established aristocracy. Um, they, these, these are big, uh, big agglomerations, hundreds of acres. They have a lot of tenants working on them. Um, their labor forces are generally have very little uh, kind of political influence or authority or ability to engage in a political process. Um, they are they are very very beholden. Um, to the owners of the estates, the estate owners have a lot of power over them. Their their workforce is quite uh, is quite restricted and oppressed by our standards. Um, now, as far as the estate itself is concerned, they're going to do some production for their own use for subsistence. But uh, what really stands out about them is they are quite market oriented and often over pretty substantial distances. So, if we're talking about say an estate in North Africa, uh, that is generally going to be producing olive oil. Uh, or or grain for export to Italy, uh, to the Mediterranean, or even farther beyond that. You might also have pottery kilns. Uh, so there, these are these are going to be quite large scale enterprises that are directed at, that are going to be directed at export um, 
either for tax purposes, like the like the state may be collecting um, tax in kind. So it may say, okay, estate owner, you're going to owe this much and you're going to pay it in olive oil that we're going to send to an army unit or that's going to be used to supply the city of Rome. Um, so very large, um, owned by very powerful and wealthy aristocracies and direct and generally directed toward a market. That's the, those are the, the key things to bear in mind about a Roman estate. For someone like me, who's somewhat dilettantish in my understanding of both antiquity and the Middle uh, middle Ages, that sounds an awful lot like a medieval manor. What is a medieval manor? And maybe we don't want to get too far into differences, but but what's the key difference between a medieval manor and a Roman estate? Because they sound very similar. Tenant farmers, you know, relatively concentrated production, subsistence production, um, payment in kind for different activities, both by the owner and, and possibly towards t- directed to tenants as well. Um, so w- where does the, the break come? The, the biggest difference is in the broader economy into which they fit. So a medieval manor is going to be much more focused on um, subsistence production, production for its own use, um, and, and on markets that are local or regional at most. Especially the earlier you go into the Middle Ages, the more likely it's going to be that a manor's production is going to be directed effectively for itself or for a very immediate market. Like in Northern Europe, for example, let's say we had an, a Roman estate in North Africa. Let's say we have um, an estate in Northern France. The produce from that estate is probably not going to reach any further than the Rhine River in Germany um, or the North Sea coast. It's not really going to go beyond that. Very restricted markets. Uh, also, not really monetized markets. Like the uh, that Roman estate may have been produce, it may have been producing some things for t- to be taken in taxes kind, but it was in a, it existed in a fully monetized economy. The amounts um, that were being taken, uh, the if they were taking. Um, olive oil in kind as tax, it would still be thought of in monetary equivalents, right? So this many liters of wine is worth uh, is worth this much in its monetary equivalent. And so it's being assessed in monetary terms, even if the tax itself is being taken in kind. Um, that is not necessarily the case with a medieval manor, where you may be thinking not in terms of money, but in terms of, uh, but in terms of the good itself. But in both cases, the labor um, capital relationship is not going to be dictated primarily by money. There may be some monetary compensation for different things that's, that's going on. But generally speaking, it's it's an interwoven web of, of obligations and to a lesser extent, in most cases, rights as well, right? Yeah, precisely. Precisely. In both cases, the labor, for, uh, the labor force is not, these are not generally wage laborers. Relatively complex productive entities, but also relatively focused, not super diversified, um, one is going to be uh, more monetized than the other. One is going to be more trade focused than the other. Um, and both have a, a, a relatively low monetary relationship between the ownership and the labor providing the productive capacity from that perspective. Uh, fair enough to sort of quickly sum up the first two? Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Okay, cool. So the big the big break comes in the early modern period where this this third entity we're going to talk about the uh, a, a, a trading company is is not going to look the same way at all from those first two. Um, can you talk a little bit about how what an early modern uh, trading company would look like and what sort of period you could expect to find it or where you might expect to find it? Yeah, so this is going to look much more familiar to us. It's going to look uh, a lot like kind of a widespread family business. 
so family, not in the sense of like an immediate nuclear family, but in kind of an ex- the sense of an extended kin group um, and people connected to your extended kin group, often through marriage, right? So let's say that, you, that we're talking about a, uh, a family of Genoese merchants. So from the city of Genoa in northern Italy, right on the, right on the Ligurian Sea. Okay, now you've got the main family set up in Genoa. Um, then you've, you're going to have branch offices run by... Um, could be could be sons of the family, second, third sons of the of the family. One goes to say Valencia in Spain. Another goes to Florence. Uh, maybe another goes to Constantinople in the Eastern Mediterranean. This could be 15th, early 16th century. So um, the, this is going to look much more like something that that makes sense to us because they're going to be thinking very much in monetary terms. Um, this was true of of practically all late medieval, early modern um, trading companies, but um, they're going, the way they think about uh, about doing business is much more what we would think of as kind of rationally capitalistic, uh, where everything is being thought of in monetary terms. They're going to be using tools that are familiar to us. They're probably using double entry bookkeeping. Um, they're going to be using financial tools that, and financial instruments that are that are familiar to us. Things like bills of exchange, where uh, you can draw on, uh, you you can send what it was effectively a, a check from point A to point B and have it and have it be drawn in different places. You don't have to carry cash everywhere. You can do book transfers where, um, you know, you have somebody who carries accounts from from two people who are involved in trade and you can just move money from one account to the other with a stroke of a pen. These are these financial instruments are all relatively new in this period. They're very widespread. They spread very quickly. Uh, and so this this family of merchants, this this firm is going to be much more familiar to us in terms of how they can they are capable of doing business. But they're interests would have been diversified. It was probably, they may have had things that they specialized in. Like there's a, a Genoese family called the Centurione who deal primarily in sugar from like the Azores and Madeira, but you can deal in anything. It doesn't really matter. If you have access to these tools, if you have access to this structure where you have a kind of dispersed uh, network of people who work for you and with you, then you can deal in whatever good you want. You can deal in slaves, you can deal in sugar, you can deal in cloth goods, whatever you need to deal in. Another difference, it seems, too, is that the the capital requirement is a little bit less intensive. So your capital primarily is going to be human capital in the form of those spread out networks of people. Um, That's largely going to come through family ties, as you mentioned. So it's not financialized in any real way at all. Um, And then you're also going to have your inventory that you have to carry. Um, You know, you'll have overhead, of course, buildings and, and, you know, the ability to conduct the various um, activities you want to conduct with paper or vellum or whatever it is you need to keep your books but basically you've gone from the capital is in the land or you know um maybe some light manufacturing type stuff to the capital is now entirely in an, or almost entirely in inventory is that a fair way to describe it yeah i mean what's important to remember about this about this function of business is about this type of business is that they have uh they have capital they have that capital can exist physically uh, or it can or it can exist essentially on paper um, and they have the network those are the two key things that they have. They're, they can move that capital from place to place, and they can invest it in a variety of profitable enterprises. Where would that capital come from? Is that entirely internally generated capital, so reinvested cash that comes off from their other activities, or an inheritance from some ancestor previously? You know, they're they're not selling stock in the company. They're not borrowing huge amounts of money from other enterprises. They're basically funding everything internally. Mostly funding everything internally. Yeah, um, they there are a variety of sources for for that capital, um, but. 
and, and there's a there can be in certain places a kind of a complicated relationship between land and and this kind of financial capital. Uh, but for the most part, no, it's reinvested over time. Um, it's but it's also embedded in their social world, which is a little bit different from our own. So things like dowries are very important for moving money from one kind of family network into another. So um, that makes marriages a very big deal, and that's true of uh, merchants not just in, in an Italian context, but also London merchants in this period, merchants in Bruges, Antwerp, uh, the Rhineland. They're there are a lot of similarities. This applies pretty broadly. Um, so, but for the most part, yeah. And, and they're capable of borrowing. They borrow regularly. They're kind of complicated networks of credit that connect these these various uh, merchant families to one another. But for the most part, no, it's reinvested capital over time. So would it be fair to say that of the three examples we've looked at so far, antiquity, medieval period, early modern period, and three the three institutions we've looked at, the, the big thing that they all share, or one of the big things they all share is the fact that there's no outside capital, there's no market for capital, or at least it's a much smaller factor in the day-to-day operation of the institution than it will be when we get to our next example, which is the modern publicly traded corporation. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it, you're starting to see hints of that at the in the late medieval, early modern period. It's for, that something like that first starts to crop up basically in Italy. Then you see it in the low countries and in, in what's now the Netherlands and Belgium. Um, you, then you see it in the Rhineland. You see it in London. Uh, but it's not really, you don't really see that everywhere until 18th, 19th, 20th century. I mean, Dutch East India Company um, or um, uh, the, the uh, what, what's the British equivalent? Is it the British East India Company? Is it the same, same names? Yeah. yeah. Both founded mm-hmm. 17th century, right? Um, yeah, yeah, very, very end of the 16th, beginning of the 17th century for the Dutch and and later for the British. You see, you see markets, uh, you see money markets, um, but they're but mostly for public debt, right? Um, not so much for not so much trading shares of companies, right? And the 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 capital structure of a given firm is going to be much less debt heavy than what we'd expect today. Yes, very much so, very much so. You still see you still see debt and credit, um, but it's. Trying to think of how to, of how exactly to put this, but it's much more embedded in social relations than it is now. So it's much more about kind of your family connections and um, and kind of your social your social connections to have those kinds of uh, credit or debtor relationships than it is embedded in larger market functions. Certainly less formal market structure than today. I mean, you could call, for instance, uh, a set of marriage interrelationships uh, a market of a certain kind, but it's not a strict market in the sense that we think of as the modern corporate bond market for instance. Exactly. Yes. Mm -hmm. Right. Okay. So that brings us to the modern public corporation. I I think I'll just give a quick overview sort of from my perspective as somebody that looks at modern public corporations every day. And and similar to Patrick's uh, disclaimer, I mean, you know, we can't be 100% uh, holistic and how we talk about these different entities. We're giving a basic overview, of course. You know, modern public corporation, everything is market oriented in one way or another. So your your funding is going to come from the market, whether it's through the equity markets or the debt markets. Uh, you are selling your goods into a highly market oriented economy. Our economy is, you know, markets um, saturate what we do you know, from the minute we get up in the morning to the minute we go to bed at night, um, compared to, this is, you know, relative to history, of course, um, you know, uh, the control of the corporation is by shareholders, at least ostensibly by shareholders who have representation on the board. 
that's delegated to an executive um, or a set of executives who then make decisions in the interest of shareholders and legally have to be in the interest of shareholders. Um, what else? Labor market relationships so or relationships with, with suppliers. There are exceptions to this, especially if you look around the world in terms of how uh, companies are, are set up. Um, tribals in Korea are maybe a good example of, of a modern um, corporate institution that doesn't function quite so perfectly markets on all sides, but um, certainly in the United States, you're going to be paying your suppliers a market price. You're going to be paying your the people that work for you a market price. Um, it, it It's all market oriented. So we've gone through this transition um, over time, over the stretch of 2000 years and four different versions of this. And of course, we're skipping all sorts of stuff in between, but to sort of set the, the 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 table a little bit uh we've gone from from market oriented land intensive uh capital um obligation bound um estates in the roman empire to medieval period um manners that are oriented much less towards the market still ha still have um obligation binding up and down within the institution um and then we transition to a sort of a, a, a trading company where much less capital intensive, more market penetration, but still your capitalization is going to be from internal cash flow. You're not going to be able to go out and borrow everything to start up a company. Um, to the modern public corporation, which is entirely market oriented, or at least you know relative to the past, market oriented in in everything that it does. Um, so Patrick, does that sound like a good sort of background that we can now start going in and and comparing more granularly um, details between these four different institutions? Yeah, that sounds about right. Okay. I think a really good place to start um, would be to talk about um, the relationship with the outside world in terms of customers that these four different, I'm, I'm going to say customers or consumers, that doesn't necessarily translate properly down the further back you go into history, but let's just go with it. <laughs> um, the relationship with consumers. So in other words, if you're talking about a medieval estate and and what it produces that you can't really take analogies from that and apply them to today right because because they, they just the the transmission of of goods and services just doesn't look at all the same yeah it is very very different especially the earlier you go and to be fair the earlier you go the less we know so it's easier to read in things that look very strange and kind of generalized from those like we, we just know far less about how a manor works in the 9th century or the 10th century than we do about how one works in the 14th or the 15th century. But even there, our sources can can leave quite large gaps. Um, the one thing I would say is that as time goes on the throughout the Middle Ages, the more things become familiar to us, the more there's production for markets as opposed to internal use. You see more diversification. You see landlords investing more um, in the in their lands. Um, so, and and you also see the kind of relationship between um, labor and capital become much more uh, kind of familiar to us. It's much more. It's much more based on wages. It's much more based on um, kind of uh, leases as opposed to customary labor. So as time goes on, it becomes more familiar to us. But if we're talking about a manor in 1100, it's going to the 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 people who work on that estate are going to have some land for themselves. Um, could be a very tiny little bit of land. Could be 
pretty a pretty substantial amount of land that they're that they're farming for their own use. And then there's going to be a stretch of the estate that's called the domain land. That's the land that belongs to the owner of the estate. The peasants uh, who who live on that who live on that manor are going to be forced for some number of days per year to work on the domain land. Um, now, domain farming would seem to make more sense as to as kind of a market oriented thing, but generally speaking, the owners of a manor owned multiple manors. And so they may have organized their own manors uh, to suit their needs. So if you're the bishop of, say, a town in England, right, and you own four manors, well, you know, you've got your own household, you need to have horses, you need to have wool for clothing for your for to, to clothe the various people who belong to your uh, who belong to your manors, you need it, you need oats, to feed those horses, um, you have needs, the, and you can set up your the the domain farming on your manors to meet the needs of of your broader household, of your broader kind of self-contained economic unit. So even then, you may still not be producing that much for a market. When you think of a command economy, you think of you know the USSR or or communism, but or maybe a war economy like the United States in in the middle of the of World War II. But that really sounds like the classic command economy, like hypothetical is is a medieval manner. Yeah, absolutely. They're they're just not set up for uh or generally are not set up for for producing for markets. Like you you have a whole bunch of kind of little miniature command economies um that that are set up for the use of the owners of those manors. Uh, and some owners of manors are quite rich and sometimes that organization can get quite complex. Uh, you know, if you own 15, 20, 50 manors, like the king, because the king outright owns a whole bunch of manors, right? Like that, that whole kind of interplay can become quite complicated, but it is generally not directed toward a market. Now, as time goes on, and markets become more developed. Um, transportation gets better. Roads get better. Water transport gets better. Um, it becomes more viable to to turn the production onto mainlands toward markets. But even then, even in the like the 14th, 15th centuries, when this kind of late medieval market economy is hitting its peak, even then you still may devote a substantial amount of uh, of the domain activity toward production for kind of the broader economic unit of which the manor is a part. How does that compare with a with a Roman estate? Because a, a Roman estate has a lot of the same sort of imperatives when you think about the manor vassal, or it wouldn't have been vassals back in um, late antiquity, but um, the, the 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 relationship between the owner of the estate and the people that work it, the tenants. Um, you've got that sort of command aspect there, where you're talking about a non-market labor relationship, um, but. The, the estate is subject to market forces in terms of the broader Roman economy, whether, you know, good good harvest for olive oil this year means your crops aren't worth as much necessarily. Um, you know, how, how, how do the, how is it that you can have the same, a similar labor relationship between, with the institution, but a different relationship with the um, customer, I guess, the end market as it is? So I, w- I will say this, there is more evidence for um, wage labor in late antiquity than there is for most of the Middle Ages up until the up, up until the 11th, 12th, 13th, 14th, 15th centuries. So there are rural laborers in late antiquity who move from place to place getting farm work. That's not the most of the labor force or even a major part of it, but they do exist, which I think tells you more uh, tells you something important about kind of the underlying structure and how it differs from the from the medieval period, uh, because that's the we know nothing about anything like that for most of the for most of especially the early middle ages um but basically it's about the broader economy the 
there are minimalist and maximalist views of the Roman economy as a whole. Um, there's one that sees it as basically a large-scale command economy and quite primitive. And then there's another view that sees it as as quite complex and market-driven. I tend much more toward the latter. I think there's really good evidence for that. Um, and so that means that you get things like price correlation over distances. You get, um, you get connected markets. You get a lot of information flow because you have a lot of movement in general. This comes back to the kind of stuff that I was working on for my dissertation. But like there's a lot of movement. There's a lot of information traveling from place to place, information about prices, information about supply and demand. Um, so you get a much more integrated um, economy and you get it over the entire Mediterranean. The Mediterranean is a super highway. It is full of ships moving, of people moving uh, from place to place. So there's what you have basically are markets that are integrated over much greater distances than would be the case again until the early modern period, even into the modern period. Uh, that's the difference. And that's the that's what makes a Roman estate different is that that's what it's producing for. You can it, like you can load a whole bunch of olive oil up on a big ship in a harbor in North Africa and it can travel to and it can travel to uh, to southern France. No problem. That is much more difficult to do in the Middle Ages. So. Um, that that means that when you have that kind of situation, you have a lot more incentive for specialization. So we have entire estates that are devoted solely to the production of olive oil, solely to the production of, uh, of solely for viticulture, just for growing grapes for wine. Um, you have huge industrial scale uh, pr- uh, facilities for the production of pottery. Like there's a really characteristic type of pottery for late antiquity called African red slip. We found the kilns for it. They're enormous. They're like, it, this is big business. But again, it's because you have really big ships. You have markets that are tightly tied together. You have a, uh, you have the guarantee of security. Um, you have lots of price information flowing. You can have that kind of productive structure when you, when you have an economy that's set up that way. How would you describe the capital markets that support that, if any at all? It is very hard for us to tell. Um, the the kinds of sources that would speak to that are very very rare. You have evidence for money lending. You have some evidence for banking, but it's kind of spread out over large uh, over large periods of time. It's hard to get a picture for how that could have worked. Um, again, I think it makes the most sense to see that as kind of embedded in social relations. So if you are from a powerful, a rich and powerful family, you are going to have access to the capital if you want to start some kind of productive business. But that's all going to be embedded in kind of aristocratic social relations. There's no like, as far as we can tell, there's little evidence for an upwardly mobile class of strivers who can get access to capital and build uh, and build productive businesses off of that. I think we're starting to see some some common themes throughout here. So um, to, to just sort of sketch out what I'm talking about, um, the relationship between the market orientation of an institution and um, for its end market versus an, the market orientation for labor. So if you're selling stuff more readily on an open market, you're more likely, there's going to be a correlation to how you're going to relate to your labor resources. In other words, wages and buying stuff in an open market are going to kind of go, come hand in hand. A second thing I think, and we can talk about each one of these in detail, um, but a second thing I'm sort of starting to see too is in the the role that social relationships play in allocating capital as opposed to market relationships allocating capital. Um, a, a, an early modern trading company looks very capitalistic by our standards, but it doesn't have a true market for capital. And you could make the same argument, I think, based on what you just described for a Roman estate. And then the third thing I think that's interesting is, is how we're seeing um, a relationship between communication over distance or movement over distance and the um, ability of of 
an institution to become increasingly market oriented. Um, so just to run through those again, um, the market orientation um, leading to labor markets developing more formally, um, the fact that, uh, or sorry, the relationship between social um, capitalization and financial capitalization, and then the relationship between increasing communication and um, transportation technology and uh, market orientation. Yeah, all of that. All of that is correct. All of that makes all of that makes perfect sense. I think, um, especially for the late Roman period, there's an interesting contrast. Um, the The early Roman period, up until up through the second century, was really the high point of the Roman economy in aggregate terms. Like that was that was when things were humming at their best. But that was not the most monetized Roman economy. The most monetized Roman economy was in the late Empire, when there was way more coin in circulation. Even if it was like terrible little copper coinage, um, it was everywhere, and that allowed people to think in monetary terms in ways that they had not before and wouldn't again for for a very long time like you see very little of that in the early middle ages it's only really when we get to the early modern period again that people are thinking about everything in monetary terms or that monet like that kind of monetary thinking um thinking about things in their monetary equivalents rather than this many bushels of wheat uh that, that we start to see that on a large scale. Now, one of the ironies of the the kind of the early modern company that we're talking about is that up until the new world mines open in the 16th century, there was also a shortage of bullion and coinage in Europe, in late medieval Europe. Um, but the difference is by that point, people are thinking in monetary terms to start with, and you can ha are already thinking in monetary terms, like a dearth of coinage doesn't mean that you can't have that, that mode of thought. And so that's when you get these clever tools like book transfers, like bills of exchange, um, to effectively increase the money supply without having to have the, the bullion to, to make into coinage. That's an interesting observation because what it suggests is that um, government decisions about how the monetary system works, right? Um, Govern one of the hallmarks of how we think about government is is money, right? It, you know, um, it, it the the money we use to exchange goods and services is a government instrument, um, and that dates back as long as coins have been around, pretty much. I mean, private coinage, um, or at least coinage that that was entirely outside of the purview of government is something that you almost never see in in history um or sorry in western history i should say I'm, I, I don't know enough about eastern history to say that with any definitive <laughs> certainty um so there, there, i think that also brings up an angle to to talk about the relationship between the state and these different institutions because the modern public corporation whether it's engaging in lobbying efforts whether it's engaging in other ways to, to influence um, uh, public policy. And some of these are completely benign and some of them I think would be viewed as more corrosive by most people. There's just this huge range of interactions between the government and the modern large corporation. Um, was that true um, of Roman estates, of medieval manners, of an early modern trading company where there was this, this uh, symbiosis between the state and the private economic institution that, was, that, that we're talking about? Oh, absolutely. We see uh, these, these are um, estates, whether it's a Roman estate or a medieval manor, are owned by politically powerful people. Um, these are, uh, and they are perfectly willing and able to use uh, the, the power of the state, um, such as it exists, to their benefit. Uh, so in, in a Roman context, that entire economy that I that I talked about, a really market-oriented one that that stretched where markets stretched over long distances, uh, where there was a lot of movement um, 
that was effectively a market economy bootstrapped on top of a command economy. So it is the, in a really basic sense, it is state action that creates the context in which that market economy can take place. So um, I mentioned the taxation in kind, right? The, that uh, you own this big estate in North Africa, um, well, the state is going to take some huge portion of that um, as, as tax, and they're going to use it to feed the city of Rome. Well, the ships that, that engage in that traffic are, um, are, called, are owned by guys called naviculari, um, basically ship owners, but these, these ships are subsidized by the state. So this whole, so, uh, but they're, they're cargoes that are destined for Rome or, or destined for Constantinople, these huge cities of the ancient world. Um, they, they're also engaging in market-oriented trading activities. So you only have to make that trip once every couple of years. If you do that, you drop off your cargo of, uh, of olive oil, of wheat or whatever in Rome or Constantinople, then you've still got room for crates of pottery on deck. You've still got room for wine. You've still got room for more amphorae of oil. And, you know, you stop in Rome. You can go to Marseille. Maybe we'll stop in, uh, maybe we'll stop in Tarragona. Uh, maybe we'll, uh, and then we'll head on back to Carthage with, uh, with another, uh, with another uh, cargo from one of those places we stopped in, right? So the what you have basically is the state subsidizing the activity of the biggest traders and creating the opportunity for those markets to grow in the first place. Does that does that make sense? Yeah, no, I, I mean, I think another way to think about that too would be the road system in, in antiquity, yeah. the, the Roman road system. There was a really great paper that was released earlier this year um, talking about the relationship between um, Roman roads as they were built in the, you know, third or first, second, third century AD and modern economic growth and modern economic capacity um, and how there's a correlation. You can you can um, find very productive, high functioning cities in places that were big intersections of the Roman road network. Um, just like today, the modern freeway system in the United States, something that I think almost everybody listening to this podcast in the US will be intimately familiar with. I mean, that's a government project, right? That allowed the boom in um, uh, trucking transportation in um, uh, TEUs being moved quickly from ships to rail to trucks. Um, suddenly, you've got this massive expansion in the ability to move goods around the the country and the world, but but you know specifically the United States. That wouldn't have been possible if we hadn't had a concerted government effort to build a bunch of interstates and to create those markets effectively. Yeah, absolutely. To you see that with road, you see this with road maintenance in the Roman period. You see it with port maintenance. Um, you see it with. I mean, they dredged out channels. They 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 built port facilities, um, often to supply the army. That was in in large part the the initial purpose of these things. But they had huge knock on effects in terms of the kind of trade system of trade, um, both local and regional, that you can build on top of that. Um, it also incentivized the creation of economies of scale. Right. Like if you're a big landowner and you know that you're going to need to provide this much wheat or this much oil. Well, if you've built the if you've already invested the capital necessary to, to build uh, roads to take your grain out um, or, you know, uh, presses for oil or presses for wine, um, you can those presses are, are already built. Those roads are already built. You've already got the stuff in place necessary to move to to make the stuff in the first place and move it from point A to point B. Um, there's nothing stopping you from expanding your operations and selling your surplus on the market, 
which is exactly what we see. That's the only way to make sense of the the data that we have for the for how the late antique economy functioned and why the rich got so much richer is because you've got this economic system and this basic economic system in place, and it favors people who have already um, who have the capital to uh, to exploit it. So why didn't you see the same sort of dynamic take place in the early modern period? You know, we've got this idea of export oriented production and stuff moving around in in very large increments why wasn't that a function of large government projects obviously uh europe was 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 very divided in this period it was it looked nothing like the roman empire in terms of the um breadth of the political integration across long distances so why then were early modern traders able to engage in this in this market oriented approach and contrary to the roman period when the increasing returns to scale created inequality um, you know, and again, partially as a function of government policy, why didn't that happen the same way in the early modern period? What what allowed the rise of actually the, the rise of a middle class um, in that period when there weren't these large projects? So that's a really good series of questions, and I don't know that I'm going to be able to satisfactorily answer all of it. Um, I will say that there was plenty of increase in inequality in, in this particular period. The the 15th century is kind of the golden age of uh, of a of an more equal medieval society, and that has to do with the Black Death. Um, that when half the population dies, uh, that suddenly gives a lot more um, kind of structural power to uh, to working people as opposed to landlords because their labor is just much more dear. It's a much tighter labor market. Uh, as you get into the 16th century again, and the population is starting to rise, um, as you have a massive kind of uptick in economic complexity. Uh, you have capital coming. You have just uh, just money flowing in from New World mines. Uh, the it starts to get more unequal again, and that peaks again, kind of in the 17th century, with the kind of um, Baroque palaces and and music and things like that. That's kind of the peak of uh, early modern inequality. But um, I, it gets to something that I want to talk to you that I want to talk about with the early modern period and, and the rise of states, which is that states do, states do help with market integration. Um, as you have a period where states are getting more complex, you have bureaucracies coming into existence in the late 15th, 16th, 17th centuries, you do get more market integration. So um, as the political system essentially simplifies as layers of local authority, um, uh, instead of your local lord being able to impose tolls whenever a, uh, whenever a wagon full of cloth crosses his territory, um, that level of authority is, starts to get stamped out. Um, and that helps with your, uh, with your ability to move goods from point A to point B. It lowers transaction costs pretty substantially, and it helps with the integration of markets as kings absorb more and more territory and as they kind of stamp out these local and regional power centers, it helps um, kingdoms integrate within themselves. But these kings are also hungry for revenue of any particular kind they can get. So let's say we've got our family of, uh, of, of Genoese merchant investors. Um, if they can buy a monopoly on a certain kind of trade or the production of a certain kind of good from the king, they're going to do that. These are, as far as nobody wants a free market here, everybody wants a monopoly. A king wants a monopoly because he can sell it for ready cash. And merchants obviously want it because why wouldn't you want to buy a monopoly? So, um, like, 
the trade in uh, the, the one of the early uh, pieces of trade in West Africa, um, as the Portuguese are kind of slowly but surely working their way down the West African coast. At one point, the Portuguese king just sells a monopoly on on all of that trade to a, a Lisbon merchant named Fernão Gomes, um, and he does it for for pretty cheap. But he was cash strapped, so he's like, okay, if you give me two hundred thousand reis, uh, the the unit of currency in use at the time, it was worth the cost of about twenty five slaves in fourteen sixty nine. Um, he's like, okay, well, I really need this money. You can have the lease for six years. You can have the monopoly for six years. Uh, the Portuguese kings leased monopolies on uh, trade in cork. Um, and this is a really common thing that you see in this period is nobody is interested in putting this on the market and encouraging competition. What they want is um, a kind of a, is a monopoly that you can sell or buy right away. So there's this interplay then between forces driving market integration and forces trying to resist market integration. And and this is something true across all four examples, um, you know, today being the most extreme example of, of market integration in terms of where we sit, um, you know, probably the medieval manner being the least um, market penetrated. Um, and actors both within institutions and across institutions. So for instance, you know, an individual controlling a manor or an estate owner in, in, in Rome have incentives to try and protect um, themselves from the market while also pursuing a more market-oriented policy because it's what's in their best interest. It's, it's sort of a contradiction um, across and across situations that depends on the larger context of what's going on. Yeah, that's exactly it. That's exactly it. You want to be in the market, but you want to be in on the in the market on your terms. And those terms hopefully involve the least amount of competition possible. It reminds me a lot of Teddy Roosevelt and trust busting and I drink your milkshake, you know, for t- people who are familiar with 20th century history. <laughs> I mean, we're talking about agglomeration of market power and people trying to take that market power and then leverage it so that they don't have to have market competition anymore, right? Like that's like a very common mm-hmm. trope throughout US history that that sort of trade-off between um, giving, you know, increasing market access uh, versus uh, people trying to prevent market access. Um, you know, the in the 19th century, uh, the Republicans were, you know, this, this party that wanted to make it make it easier for individuals to farm. And one of the reasons the South were Democrats is because they liked having lots of concentrated power in the plantation system. Um, in modern terms, I mean, we're starting to see, you know, turning it back to our modern corporation, we're, we're starting to see this this discussion, I think, still relatively nascent, but, but out there around market power of large companies like, for instance, Amazon, you know, which is the classic public corporation. It's huge. It spans borders. It, it, it's got massive capital market funding um, and, you know, massive access to, to capital markets. And it's market oriented in everything it does. And yet there are concerns that that, that size will be used to prevent other markets from from getting involved in what's in what's trying to in in, in the productive capacity of, of Amazon. Does that kind of make sense? I mean, it, I'm just trying to bring it back a little bit to the public corporation. Absolutely, yeah. The they're in all of the periods that we're looking at. The the existing actors are incentivized to want high barriers to entry into the market, right? Even if there is competition past a certain point in the market, uh, everybody those all of those kind of entrenched actors want high barriers to entry. Are there good examples from 
any of the periods um, that we're talking about where there was a concerted effort to rebel against or regulate against or you know push back against those barriers to entry? Let me think about that for a second. That's a really good question. Um, I mean, I suppose you could even, thinking about it from a, a monopsony, a single buyer as opposed to a monopoly, a single seller perspective, a, a peasant revolt in the Middle Ages would look a, a lot like a rebellion against con- concentrated market power. Yeah. So, okay, actually, yeah, I can give you a perfect example of that. The, in, in the 1381 English Peasants' Rebellion is in large part a reaction against attempts to regulate wages after the Black Death, right? Because this is this is the fundamental use of political power to buttress one social group, to buttress landowners uh, who are, you know, suffering. Let's all shed a tear for for the massive estate owners of, uh, of mid-14th century England. But their uh, their land is less profitable. They're, they're drawing less revenues from it. Uh, um, as as labor becomes more expensive, and so the there's a thing called the Statute of Laborers that's passed uh, just after the Black Death, which attempts to hold wages down by fiat. Um, nobody really followed this, but uh, occasionally people got prosecuted. And in general, the environment was. The king is working in cahoots with the noble class to try to keep wages as far down as humanly possible. And this is the dynamic that gives you one of the most serious peasant rebellions of the Middle Ages is, you know, people, these these people were already being taxed heavily to pay for a war that was going poorly. And at the same time, the institutions of governance were working hard to make sure that they made less money. Um, this that that's about as close as I think you're going to get in this period to, um, to to what you're talking about. I think a useful caveat here, we, we've talked about sort of some of the similarities, some of the differences, and, and talked about it from a modern perspective. I think one of the useful caveats we could maybe discuss a little bit is how much less extreme um, our modern understanding of these conflicts or institutional power grabs um, of various kinds are. Um, a really good example, you know, is, is how is, is the is the almost theological approach to serfs role on a medieval manner. Um, you know, if you couldn't just go on strike, right? I mean, that, that, that it doesn't work that way. You couldn't, yeah. you couldn't say, oh, I'm just going to quit my job and go off to another employer. You know, maybe they'll pay me a little bit less, or maybe I'll, there'll be some trade off there. But you know, I'll, for whatever thing I'm trying to optimize, I'll, I'll, I'll get something out of that. That was not an option. I mean, and you're talking about literally on pain of death. Um, you know, the conflicts it seems like are one big difference between our system, or, or maybe not the conflicts, but the extremity of, of, the, of the ends to which people will go in all sorts of um, frames. Just our system seems to be much less extreme in so many ways. Is that, a, is that a fair comment to make both in terms of the labor relationship, but also more broadly that the, the consequences for trying to change the system or um, you know, uh, increase market penetration or you know, whatever it is you're trying to do are, are much less severe these days? Um, I think they look different. Um, yeah, I would say that in terms of the use of raw physical force to buttress the existing social system and, and the way that that ties into the kind of baseline economic system, yes, it is, it is substantially less extreme in, in that regard. Um, we justify our system differently. Uh, and I think to a medieval person, the idea that everybody has to sell their labor on the market and, ha- and that we're all kind of at heart atomized individuals bouncing around a market would seem pretty dang extreme. Um, so so that's, always worth, that's always worth bearing in mind. 
Uh, medieval people conceptualize these things differently, and that that applies not just to kind of social uh, the social order, which was thought to be divinely ordained. You, there was no medieval knight who did not think that he was a knight by the grace of God, and that the violence that he that he did as a means of shoring up his social position was was good and divinely ordained. Um, but at the same time, there were flip there were other sides to that that played into the economic system. So there was the medieval idea of just price that to overcharge for a good just because you could um, was sinful and bad. And there were ideas around around usury, around charging interest on things. Medieval people found a ton of clever ways of getting around that. But the fact that the prohibition existed at all uh, is an important one that speaks to how kind of social mores can can structure markets as they exist. Um, the The economic institutions in an economic institutional sense were quite different. Um, in the in the Middle Ages, in terms of ideas about property, about how people were supposed to interact with each other in a market sense, were 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 just different. I mean, there were there were different ideas. There were hints of things that are quite familiar to us in different places at different times. Like if we showed up in Venice, even in like the 13th century, it would make perfect sense to us. This is a society of capitalists. These are buyers and sellers and producers all operating in a market. But if we went to say, you know, if we left Paris and went out on a road into the country side, that world of buying and selling and market activity is going to look practically, um, it's going to be basically unknowable to us. Do we have any sort of firm idea of, of how that analysis looks when we're talking about antiquity about the the Roman period? Like, do we have, um, would, if, if you were dropped on an estate in North Africa, you know, circa 200 AD, would you feel like, yeah, this is, this is a set of social conceptions and the way people interact with each other and with markets, like this sort of makes sense to me, or would it be more like, you know, I, I kind of like to use the, the phrase, like, you know, people in the past were aliens, you know, like they just <laughs> mm-hmm. didn't think the same way as us. So on that, on that spectrum, would, would you consider like a, a an estate in antiquity to be similarly di- different to us um, as a medieval period um, manner would be, or or is it something that looks more close to our system, or is at least comprehensible? I think it would depend on who's who we were following around that estate. I think if we were following around the owner or the manager, because they had manager, they had estate managers. I think if we were following around those people, they would make sense to us. And there's a there's a great uh, book on this on kind of economic rationalism and estate management in uh, in in late antique Egypt, where we have the best records, where because papyrus survives there, so we get a sense for kind of day to day accounting and things in a way that we don't in other places. If we were following around the estate owner or the estate manager. I think it would make perfect sense to us. These they're generally producing for markets. They're thinking about how to move labor around from place to place. Oftentimes they're having to pay laborers, uh, and they're not tied to them by custom um, or or rent. So I think if from their perspective, yeah, it makes a lot of sense. I think from the laborers' perspective, it's hard. It's harder for us to say, but probably not as much. Now. Uh, if we went to the place where those goods were being sold, I think we would fit in just fine. Give yourself a pocket full of coinage um, and, a, and some knowledge of the language. You wander around a market in Rome and you're going to be able to get along just fine. So from the buying perspective, sure. From the producing perspective, I think it depends on, on who we're, on who we're uh, following. To sort of carve out a few a few takeaways, I think we can start moving towards a synthesis of, of this here. You know, one of the things we talked about previously was the interaction between, um, you know, how important it is to understand that when you become more market oriented in your customer relationship or your relationship with capital, that's going to feed through to labor and vice versa. There's a sort of like like interplay between those factors. Um, 
integrating across distance, whether it's by communication or by transportation of goods, is really, really important. Um, the third thing is the fact that that capital markets um, today are devoid of social relationships. Not devoid, maybe. I mean, I think a lot of bond traders or bond salespeople on Wall Street would probably get mad at me for saying devoid of social relationships, but certainly um, much more atomized and not dependent on social networks as in the past. Um, and then to synthesize that that fourth point that, that um, the way that people conceived of their interactions with each other and with mar with markets is going to be very contextually different, whether you're in the Middle Ages, whether you're in antiquity, whether you're in the early modern period, whether you're today. Um, so the, the framing of analysis has to sort of be dependent on a bunch of factors you might not necessarily think about when you're coming at it strictly from the perspective of finance or economics. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. The The... When we try to understand people in the past as solely actors who are, if we try to understand them purely in our own economic terms, we're going to miss some important things. Um, the, I, I think the bit about social relations is is really essential if we want to understand if we want to understand how this stuff worked. Um, like even if we're sitting in the office with our Geno with our Genoese merchants, right? If we're sitting in a branch office in Valencia and they're thinking about investing in a voyage, that the, their analysis of that is going to make perfect sense, right? They're thinking about uh, they're thinking about risk. They're going to try and buy insurance on the voyage if at all possible. Um, there are markets for insurance. They're tr they're drawing up ironclad contracts in legal language that's going to make perfect sense to us. But where the capital comes from for that, how these people in the, within the business got their jobs in the first place, it's like imagine everything is running like your like your local um, three generation family business with the fail sons. You know that's <laughs> like that that is every medieval every kind of medieval firm late medieval or early modern firm is going to is going to have that like there's there's a concrete company in my hometown that I worked for when I, when I was in college that is now about to be run by a second generation fail son and I'm like imagine that but everywhere and for and for and, a long time too not just like for yes. one generation and then it fails and that's that because the market pressures are intense but because of these social relationships being enduring it it, it lasts for much longer than just one or two generations yeah because the because the fail son marries the marries the daughter of another one of these families who brings in a huge dowry that provides an infusion of capital that allows the family to keep going and because cousin Giacomo is not a fail son and uh, and manages to keep one of the branches running uh, uh, running a pretty tight ship. Is there a way, um, this is uh, to, to sort of close up here, I think, is there an obvious sign when you're looking at, at um, analyses of the present that re that are rooted in the past? You know, for a really good trope is the United States is Rome, right? Like we're about to witness the, or we're in the, in the fall of the American empire and so on and so forth. Th that's like a classic one. There are obviously an unending number of these that that's just one that I think I've, I've seen a lot. Um, is there a way to look at that sort of analysis that's rooted in the past and say, okay, you're misapplying this, you know, is there sort of a, a, without having a super intimate knowledge of what's going on in the past to do a substantive critique of the, of, of misunderstanding of the past events, is there a way as a, as a sort of person sitting and, and reading this to sort of have your ears up and be skeptical about an analysis that's claiming to understand the present based on something that happened in history. Yeah, I think the easiest way to, to go about this, even, and you don't even have to have like the deepest understanding of whatever the whatever the past parallel is, um, is to think this is a tool to think with, not an equation where you plug things in and get a result out. 
right? This is, if we're talking about, you know, market activity in the, in the second and third century, the differences are just as important as the parallels are, and the differences are gonna give us insight into our own situation, right? So, the, so if we're trying to use the past, we're, it's not that we just say, oh, we're living through the fall of the Roman Empire. We'd say we're living through a political moment where there are things that happened in the past that might help us think through our own problems in the ways that they're both similar and different. Yeah, so that, that makes sense. I mean, I, uh, I, I another example of that would be, you know, oh, well, you know, clearly there's this correlation between increasing um, market orientation when you can move stuff or ideas across long distances. So that must mean that anytime you can move stuff or ideas across long distances, only good things happen from that. And, you know, that's obviously just too simplistic, especially when like in our economy today, globally, like we're so integrated already, right? Yeah, well, so I'll give you a good example of this, right? This is in the early 16th century, um, there's a massive kind of, there's just kind of a massive explosion of stuff that happens very quickly, a lot of which has to do with the availability of investment capital, like printing, gunpowder warfare, states becoming more powerful, um, the uh, uh, voyages of exploration, all of which are capital intensive projects. Like, this is a tremendously disruptive series of developments. Like there's, they, it creates what we think of as the modern world, but it's also tremendously disruptive in and of itself. Lots of people die because of this. Uh, lots of people's lives get worse. Um, and I think there's, there is kind of a parallel there with our own um, kind of tech-oriented economy that relies very heavily on speculative capital investment, um, where there, things have, the, the whole taxi industry has changed pretty much overnight. How we get around in cities has changed very quickly, in large part because of injections of large amounts of capital. This, these periods in the past, when we're looking for things, we're like, oh, yeah, this is the root of this, or here's a, here's a way for us to understand this. The parallels, as you point out, are not always good ones. Um, they're, they're not always supposed, they should not always make us feel better about our own world. I think we can wrap it up with that and move on to our, our final segment, which is trading rich and trading cheap. So I'm going to, Patrick, throw out an idea for you, and you can tell me if it's trading rich or trading cheap. Um, you podcast for a living. Um, you've been podcasting in a period when we've seen an explosive growth of the medium. We are talking on a podcast right now. Do you think podcasts are trading cheap and are kind of overrated and you know have been taken too far, or do you think they're they're trading? Um, sorry, do you think they're trading rich and have and are overrated, or do you think they're trading cheap and um, have a lot more growth ahead of them? I think that they are. I think that's the I think that's the big question. I would say they are right now trading a little bit rich. I think there's a lot of money flowing. Uh, there's a lot of VC money flowing into the podcast industry that was looking for a place to go after it became clear that digital media startups were not going to provide the kind of return on investment uh, that that people thought they were. So that money was out there looking for a home. Podcast seemed like a good place for it to go. Uh, I think this. I, I think very quickly this the the podcasting industry has changed from something that was dominated by amateurs to something that is increasingly dominated by several large large companies and there is not enough rev ad revenue floating around right now for all of those companies to survive. Um, all these companies that just got big rounds of investment. So some of them are going to die. Um, and I think the question is whether either the rat ad revenue drastically shoots up, which may or may not happen, or they find alternative ways to fund podcasts, whether those are paywalls or um, kind of you know, optioning them for other media and, and getting direct cash infusions that way. Uh, so right now, I think they're a little overrated. It's interesting. I like, as you said, the movement towards more professional production and more, you know, large scale um, companies being involved. My favorite podcasts are almost always from people that either currently run or started as amateurs, uh, you know, whether it's yourself, um, you know, 
one of my favorite podcasts is called the history of English. And it's just a guy that's really into the history of the English language, you know, and like it makes the content so much better. So I, I don't know. I, I like, I, I tend to think that that side of it, like the amateur side of it is, is underrated. And the, you know, as you said, like doing it like any other media form, whether it's print magazines or, you know, a cable TV channel or whatever being, being over it. So I, I think I agree with you there as a whole. Um, you spent a long time writing about MMA. MMA was once sort of viewed as the next big thing in sports. I know it's still quite popular. I don't see it discussed as much as like the up and coming thing that everyone's going to care about a lot. Um, do you think MMA is is trading rich or trading cheap? So uh, I would not invest any money in MMA if I were anybody. <laughs> uh, I'll put it to you that way. The Right now, the audience is declining. Um, the there is essentially one person in the sport who can sell uh, who can sell pay-per-views and that's Conor McGregor and he just lost and uh, whether he's ever going to fight again or whether he's ever going to win again I think is our big questions it is a star-driven sport and right now it does not have stars the the product itself that the UFC is putting out there um, is not that compelling to be really honest with you like if you tune into a random card you're gonna watch uh, what is essentially uh, anonymous violence and Maybe that appeals to you if you're looking for something a little bit more than that, some sort of meaning or storyline or narrative that's going to get you to invest in it. The UFC does not have that to offer. They did just sign a, a big uh, broadcast deal with ESPN and with ESPN Plus, but I don't think that's going to help them find new viewers. So it is a lucrative property if they can keep labor costs low, which right now they can. Um, but the second that they have to start paying fighters more than they are, that their profitability is going to go drastically down. Uh, last thing, uh, today is election day in the United States as we're recording this. It's uh, November 6th. Um, by the time this hits your podcast feed, it'll be a couple days after the election, I think, because I'm a little bit of a slow editor. Um, but uh, that brings up the question, uh, Patrick, do you think democracy in America is trading rich or trading cheap to, to crib uh, de Tocqueville's uh, famous book title? Um, I think we're going to know a lot more about that in a couple of days, but uh, I am not optimistic. I've been really impressed by the leading indicators for turnout, which, you know, um, I think we had like five different states deliver um, early votes that were bigger than total votes cast in uh, 2014, which was the lowest midterm turnout since like the 1960s. So or sorry, since the 1910s. So um, I'm, I'm hopeful that that is a, is a good sign, regardless of, of the uh, horse race outcome. Yeah, I would say I would say short term I'm optimistic. Long term, I think the kind of I think the structures of American governance are in, of American governance in general and American democracy are uh, are in real trouble. And that's that's the part that worries me. Like we're going through a period of very rapid institutional change that nobody seems to really have their heads wrapped around, um, or what the long term outcomes of that are going to be. Uh, like. The, there was a big piece that just came out, uh, a Washington Post and ProPublica investigation into kind of the decline of Congress. Congress has been what has governed the United States for most of its existence, and it has effectively become irrelevant in the last 10, 12 years or so. And so I, I think about things like that, other kind of struc deep structural changes in how American governance works, and the basic... Um, kind of mismatch between the institutions that we have and the geographic distribution of people uh, and their views. Those are the things that worry me. I think in the short term, people are going to get out and vote, and that's great for American democracy. In the long term, we're going to have to figure out how to balance uh, those kind of structural forces with, uh, with institutions that 
can look kind of ossified. Really makes us no different from the estate owner back in Rome or the the uh, <laughs> domain runner back in uh, the Middle Ages or a family trying to expand markets and uh, trading Mediterranean trading in the middle early modern period or even a CEO today. So uh, with that, we'll wrap it up. Uh, thanks very much, Patrick Wyman, for joining us. Um, y'all should definitely check out his podcast, Tides of History. Uh, thanks so much for joining us today, Patrick. This is super fun. Hey, thank you so much for having me. I had a great time. Thanks for joining us this week on the Bespoke Cast. Once again, I'm Bespoke Investment Group's macro strategist, George Perks. If you enjoy Bespoke Cast, please consider reviewing the podcast in the iTunes Store or on your favorite podcast platform. Reviews help us gain visibility and also help us improve the podcast in future episodes. If you'd like to learn more about our firm, please visit bespokepremium.com and follow us on Twitter at Bespoke Invest. Our research includes reports, analysis, commentary, and data sets sent out daily. Special thanks to the Free Music Archive for the music featured in this episode. The track is called Marathon Man by Jason Shaw and is made available under the Creative Commons license. Please visit freemusicarchive.org for more information. Copyright 2017, Bespoke Investment Group, LLC. The information herein was obtained from sources Bespoke Investment Group, LLC believes to be reliable, but we do not guarantee its accuracy. Neither the information nor any opinions expressed constitute a solicitation of the purchase or sale of any securities or related instruments. Bespoke Investment Group, LLC is not responsible for any losses incurred from any use of this information.